Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Acts chapter 8. As we're continuing our way through the book of Acts, we come to this uh, really fascinating passage. If you were with us last week, you know that the context of this happens to be around Simon the magician, who thought that the gift of God was something he could purchase with money. And we, we really understand that this is the gift of God because of the larger context around this issue pertaining to Simon the magician. But this week I wanted to deal a little bit more specifically with these verses, which have been called by Howard Marshall, and particularly, uh, yeah, particularly verse 16. Um, by, it was referred to by Howard Marshall as probably the most extraordinary verse in the entirety of the book of Acts. So I just want to remind you what we're looking at this morning within the context of Simon the magician thinking he could buy the Holy Spirit with money. We have this particular verse, verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Let's ask God to help us and then we'll get to work. Father, we just say thank you for your word. Lord, we encounter this particular passage here. It is of significance to us because it was obviously of significance to you and as a result you have recorded it for us here in your word. But we confess, Lord, this verse stands out in stark contrast to all of the rest of the New Testament teaching on faith and repentance and the giving of the Holy Spirit all happening at the moment of conversion, Lord. And so as we look at this particular verse this morning, this particular passage, we are especially desperate and needy, as always, for the illumination of your Spirit upon this word. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see that your spirit would illuminate the text before us, that we might understand. And having understood, Lord, we pray that we would recognize our connection as well to the apostles, ultimately to you, to your word, and what the responsibility is for us having known and understood that. God, open our eyes to see that today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine a comic strip for a moment. There's a gentleman watching TV, ensconced comfortably in his lazy boy or perhaps upon a couch, and he's sitting there just watching TV and having a good time, and in walks this rather uh, disgruntled, unhappy uh, friend of his who immediately demands that he change the channel to whatever she wants to watch. And um, he's looking at her, and she says, you better change the channel right now or else. I'm going to watch what I'm going to watch, and I want it right now. To which the previously content and happy gentleman looks at her and says, Well, um, why? Why should I change the channel? What, what gives you the right to get to watch whatever you want to watch when I was clearly here first? To which she then responds, I'll give you five reasons all five of them are right here. One, two, three, four, and five. 
And he shrugs his shoulders and he kind of bows his head and he says, here's the remote, watch what you want. And he gets up and he walks away. And as he's walking away, he looks at his fingers and he says in a rather sad, pathetic tone of voice, why can't you guys get organized like that? Why can't you guys get organized like that? Uh, I start there with that joke because one of the undeniable truths, particularly of the 20th century, considering unions and the Industrial Revolution, is that power belongs to those who organize and work together, who strive for and are able to achieve some form of unity. They have a shared purpose, a shared goal, They are working together to achieve their ends. We find that within the scriptures, the church is called to unity as well. And though it is to be a gift that is given and assumed and to be had by the church, we find as we look back across the pages of history, particularly church history, that this is something that has not been well achieved, not been well done. A quick survey of church history would show you that um, there are various creeds and different councils that had to be called across the early church in particular to deal with different rifts and different divides. For example, Constantine, uh, the emperor, called for the Nicene Creed for a council to be held at Nicaea in order to deal with the political threat to his empire, which was being caused by a split within the church over the Arian claim the heretical Arian claim, I might add, that Christ was nothing more than an exalted creature, uh, but not fully God. And of course, this goes back even further. In the middle of the third century, Cyprian of Carthage recognized many different movements that were happening within the church, and he saw these as factions or splits from the church. And in response, he wrote a book entitled On the Unity of the Church, in which he viewed unity through the lens of a person's relationship or oneness with the bishop. And at the time that Cyprian wrote, there were various bishops in various cities, and it was recommended by him in this particular book that if you wanted unity within the church, if you yourself wanted to have oneness with other Christians, you need to bring yourself into alignment with any of these various different bishops, and you need to have fellowship, or the term they used, you needed to have communion with those particular bishops. And what we find is that over the course of time, more and more these various bishops in various cities began to take on a less significant, less prominent role. And one bishop in particular, the bishop in the city of Rome, began to take on a greater and more significant, more prominent role, such that by 1054, I'm sorry, by 1302, Pope Boniface VIII, who was a pope, convenient for him to make this declaration, claimed that submission to the Roman pontiff or the pope was necessary for salvation. So unity now is to be understood by your relationship by 1302 to the pope. Of course, this comes in the wake of the great schism. The unity of the visible church was called into question in 1054 when Rome and Constantine Constantinople, I'm sorry, Constantinople, split. And you have the church in the west, and you have the church in the east. And of course, the reasons for that split were theological over the issue of iconography, but also political in terms of 
who the true emperor of the, who the true ruler of the empire was, who the real emperor was. But the concern for oneness, though we see it arising in the midst of all of these different disputes throughout the church, throughout church history, the concern for oneness actually goes back far, far earlier, beyond the book of Acts, all the way to the gospel of John, where Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, prayed in the garden. And he said, Father in heaven, I do not ask for these only, referencing the 12 who were with him at that time, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, in order that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Our understanding of God's love for us and the world's understanding that there is a God who has set his love upon the church is contingent upon unity within the church, oneness within the church. And that's the real thrust of what we see happening here in Acts chapter 8. Something extraordinary has taken place. The gospel movement is focused in Jerusalem. It is a, a very local event happening in Jerusalem. And for the first time, it is moving outside of the boundaries of Judaism, tra- typical traditional Jews. It is going to Samaria. The Samaritans receive the word, they believe the word, they get saved, but something unique happens here, and we need to look at it in order to understand the relationship of Samaria as well as the further Gentile mission and its connection to the preaching of the cross that originated from Jerusalem from the apostles. Luke wants to draw our attention to that. He says in verse 14, when the apostles when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. As I, Howard Marshall says, that is the most extraordinary verse in all of the book of Acts because what we have here is a clear gospel message. Uh, Philip comes preaching Christ. They get saved. The Simon magician guy, he gets up and he's kind of a fraudulent believer and he wants to buy the Holy Spirit for money. In the backdrop of all of that, there is no question, there is no doubting or disputing that these Samaritans did in fact receive the word of God, but they, did, they were saved, they put their faith in it, they were saved, but they did not, had not received the Holy Spirit. Down come Peter and John from Jerusalem. They see these guys, they see what's happening here, and as Luke tells us, they prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for that it had not, he had not yet fallen on any of them. Now, right here, we got to address a controversy because this understanding of salvation is a little bit different. Previous in the book of Acts, 
Peter had preached the promises for you and for your offspring and for all who would believe in the name of Christ. He went on to urge them to repent and trust in Christ that their sins would be blotted away and that they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All throughout the rest of the New Testament, the teaching within the letters of the church, and we even find this consistent with statements that Christ himself has made in the Gospels, that the Holy Spirit is given when a person repents of their sins and places their faith in Christ. We do not understand these as two separate or distinct things, as though you believe in Jesus, you repent of your sins, and then, you know, six weeks goes by, somebody comes along and says, now it's time for you to get the Holy Spirit, and then they put their hands on you and they pray for you, and then you receive the Holy Spirit. That's not how we understand it, because that's not how the rest of of the scriptures teach it. The receiving of the Holy Spirit is referred to as a first fruits or, or an, inherit, uh, uh, an earnest, beg your pardon, an earnest that is a down payment of the full inheritance that is ours in Christ. It is the gift that is given once we place our faith in Christ and belong to him. So we come to this text here and we immediately are confounded. And many churches, many churches, particularly those churches of a Pentecostal or charismatic background, look at this particular passage and they see something that they would consider to be normal and descriptive for how the church should function today. It's very common to hear individuals say, you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ, but that there will after that follow a secondary experience, a secondary blessing, in which you will then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the argument for why that happens or, or the scriptural basis that is used to suggest that comes from this particular text here. And we have a problem. All the rest of the New Testament doesn't present it that way. We have this passage as well as another passage later on in the book of Acts which seem to suggest that this is how it happens. You say, what's that other passage? It's Acts chapter 19. Paul makes his way through Ephesus and he encounters some believers there. And as he's talking to them, they share with him that they are followers of the way. But Paul also discerns in that encounter that these men have not received the Holy Spirit. So he questions them a little bit closer. And he asks them whether or not they had been baptized into the name of Christ. To which they then said, no, we've only heard of John's baptism. That is the baptism of John. And so then he baptizes them in the name of Christ. And then they received the Holy Spirit. A lot of people want to look at that and say these were followers of the way. And I think Luke's point in Acts 19 is that these were guys who thought they were followers of the way, but they hadn't heard of Christ and they hadn't surrendered to Christ and they hadn't been baptized into Christ. And so although a lot of students of this position want to say that Acts 19 confirms Acts chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit is a secondary experience of salvation, a second blessing that comes later on down the road, there's a significant difference between what's happening in chapter 19 and chapter 8. In chapter 8, Philip comes preaching Christ. In chapter 19, Paul discovers some guys who only knew the baptism of John. In other words, their knowledge content was different. These guys understand the gospel, they understand the cross, they understand who Jesus is, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit. The guys in Acts chapter 19 did not have that full understanding and were not baptized into that knowledge, that surrender to Christ, and they don't receive the Holy Spirit. 
But as soon as they do receive that knowledge, as soon as Paul does explain it to them in Acts chapter 19, then they do receive the Holy Spirit. I don't think, therefore, that Acts chapter 19, given those significant differences between the knowledge content between these guys and these guys, I don't think Acts chapter 19 can be used to substantiate that. Leaves us with the question then, what's happening here? What is going on? It says in Acts chapter 8, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now their concern is, whoa, is what is happening in Samaria legitimate? And they're right to have that concern because we encounter within this passage a fellow named Simon who is professing faith in Christ, who is described as even walking and continuing on with the preaching and the teaching of Philip. And yet, when the Holy Spirit does come, this Simon sorcerer, magician fellow, reveals himself asking whether or not he can buy this gift, this ability to confer the Holy Spirit. And that shows him as not really understanding the gospel at all. So when John and Peter are sent down to investigate, it is right for the church in Jerusalem to be concerned. It is right for the apostles at the church in Jerusalem to wonder whether or not this is legitimate. Because up until this point, it has not moved outside of Jerusalem. This is a turning point in the book of Acts. Number one. Number two, once they go to investigate, they find there at least one guy who actually is a false convert. He thinks he's a Christian, but he's not. So they're right to investigate. They want to make sure that what these guys are placing their hope and their faith in is the same as what the fellows in Jerusalem are doing. So they come down, and they investigate, and they find that the Holy Spirit has not been given when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. We've got to ask this question. What in the world is God doing withholding the gift of the Holy Spirit from individuals who had received the word of God, who were true Christians, why does he withhold that gift until Peter and John show up? Now, there are lots of, lots of different theories that are suggested as to why this might be the case. And if you are so inclined, you can buy a bunch of really thick scholarly books that will treat this subject for six, 700 pages. I waded through quite a bit of that this last week, and at the end of the day, I am going to go with the best takeaway that I think is supported by Scripture. Why did God do this? Why did he wait to bestow the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came down and prayed and laid hands? Clearly, I think this was an action on the part of God to withhold the giving of his Spirit in light of the fact that what God wanted to make clear, what he wanted to show not only to the apostles from Jerusalem, but as well as to the Samaritan believers, was that this gift of the Holy Spirit, this inclusion into the Christian movement, 
was to be a part of the one Christian movement. The same way that the Jews received the gift of the Holy Spirit that day at Pentecost with the preaching of Peter and the thousands that came forward and were baptized. The same way that the Jews were brought into fellowship with God, were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, in that same way, so would the Samaritans be brought into fellowship. They would receive the Holy Spirit the same as all the other Jews did on the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Imagine the schisms. It's like a, it's like a stepson. It's like somebody who's sort of not as good as a real son, you know, sort of an, an added figure to the family. Say, oh, well, we got saved on the day of Pentecost when Peter was preaching, one of the apostles. But you guys, you just had a deacon. You just had Philip. We're better than you. And this is not just me up here throwing out crazy random theories. You know from the historical context there was a long history of bitterness between Jerusalem and Samaria. The Samaritans considered themselves, in the eyes of the Jews, second-class second class Jews, not Jews. And the Jews considered them inferior biologically, racially, and the Samaritans felt that. And so when Philip comes preaching, the best guess that I think God is doing here is he wants to show the Samaritans that their reception of the Holy Spirit comes from the apostolic preaching of the cross, the same as the Jews in Jerusalem. That is the best takeaway. God wants to show the Jews in Jerusalem that the salvation of the Samaritans is, in fact, a genuine work of God and they are all tied together into the same apostolic foundation. In Ephesians 2.19, don't flip there, just listen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God, built on, listen to this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The statement that Paul is making to the church at Ephesus, a church comprised largely of Gentiles, is that there is no difference between your faith and what it rests on as there is from a Jew living in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. There is no difference between the Gentiles' faith and what it rests on as opposed to the Jewish faith and what it rests on. He says you are all members of the household of God. You are all built on, and he says, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So there's no difference. There's no distinction. What is happening in Samaria is the same as what is happening in Jerusalem. And God wanted to make that explicitly clear. John Stott makes this interesting comment. He says, John Stott in his commentary says that the official action and visit of Peter and John were historically exceptional. These things have no other precise parallels 
in our day. Because there are no longer any Samaritans or any apostles of Christ. He says, today we are saved and we receive both forgiveness and the Spirit together the moment we believe precisely because we are not Samaritans. Stott's point in wording it that way is to say that what is happening here in Acts chapter 8 is not something that should be normal. In other words, the events that are described for us here are not events that we should expect in the church today. They are extraordinary events that are happening in an extraordinary historical situation dealing with a group of Jews who are no longer genetically pure, no longer the biologically the same as Jews in Jerusalem, that has resulted in a schism within these two groups of people, and God is working to bridge that divide, to heal that schism. And Stott's point is that this was unique to this time and this age for these people. It's not something we need for us today. And again, the rest of the whole Old Testament bears that out. Now, I think there are two points, really, that we need to focus on when we see this particular text. We need to see the apostolic unity that we have, and we also need to understand the individuality that we have. Church, please understand, unity is God's gift to every church that believes in the gospel, but expressing that unity is every church's ongoing task. Every church is given the gift of unity, but every church must find and continue to work to express that unity. Look at what's happening here. They come down, and they pray for these guys, and they lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So they receive the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, the text goes on to tell us that they continued to preach. There was a time of discipleship. They continued to, uh, to instill all of the cornerstone foundational doctrines of Christian belief into these Samaritans. And then you jump all the way down. Verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The apostles and Philip, they go here to preach, to teach the word, and they pray, the apostles come down, and they pray, and they lay hands so that the Holy Spirit falls. And once the Holy Spirit has come, they continue to teach, and they continue to do some discipleship. And then guess what? They leave and they go home. They check out. In other words, when the Samaritans are fully discipled, when they have heard the word, they've got the Spirit, the apostles aren't sticking around to lord it over them. This has enormous implications for church structure. I mean, when we look at what's happening in Samaria, if this were a modern-day discussion, we'd be posing the question, should this church be a satellite church, maybe, of the Jerusalem church? Should there be some sort of a video uplink 
Uh, maybe Peter, when he preaches on Sunday, they can stream it in via the internet into Samaria so that we can make sure what's going on in Samaria is the exact same as what's happening in Jerusalem. Uh, is this going to be a church plant that is going to always have to run everything by uh, the approval process, the board of apostles, as it were, back in Jerusalem? Is this how this is going to work? What is the structure that is going to happen? What is the relationship, institutional or organic, whatever fancy word you want to throw on it, what is the relationship between between the group in Samaria and the group in Jerusalem. And the example that the apostles give us is actually quite helpful. They came, they preached the word, and then they left. The thought here is that there is no hierarchy. There is no top-down, keep them under our thumb, make sure they don't get out of line or do something crazy. The idea here is that they received the word. And if they have the word and they have the spirit... They don't need anything further. We look at this passage, and from this passage, we understand that the church is one, that there is an apostolic unity to churches who hold to apostolic teaching. But when we say that, when we say we believe, for example, in the Nicene Creed, in the apostolic unity of the church, as the, as the creed says, we believe in only one universal apostolic, and then the word Catholic is also used there, Catholic, Holy Church. When we say that, and when we repeat that in the Nicene Creed, we're not talking about having to be a part of a hierarchy of churches that are associated with Rome or with the Pope in Rome. When we say we believe in one apostolic church, one holy, united church, we're talking about all those believers who receive the word of Christ, who hold to the gospel. From that and from this event here in Acts chapter 8, it does not follow based on the actual apostles who did the so-called apostolic preaching. It does not follow that there has to be a heavy-handed, top-down hierarchy. Unity as Christ prayed for in John chapter 17, is not found by all of us being under some sort of an organizational flowchart. It's only found in us being united to Christ and following his word. So we see here in this particular passage two things. The apostolic unity of the church and we also see the individuality or the autonomy of the local church. When these guys check out, the Samaritans, you don't see it in the text. They're not like, oh, wait, wait, what do we do? What do we do now? You guys are leaving. What's going to happen? I mean, there's a lot of work to do. As a former church planter, I can tell you, organizing different ministries within the church, structuring the worship service, pulling together some guys who know the scriptures so that they can teach and preach on a regular basis. These are things that require a lot of effort. There is no indication that there's any panic from the Samaritans once the apostles leave, like, oh, please don't go. We need you guys. They preach the word. They're headed back to Jerusalem. There's no indication from the Samaritans that are like, we can't do this without you. Rather, the opposite. We believe that we have the Holy Spirit and we've got the word of God. God bless. We'll see you guys later. We can handle this with those two things. That's what we find here. Now, we conclude that oneness or unity in the church 
is not an organizational unity. Rather, it's a spiritual unity. And as we look at this particular text, we find that that spiritual unity is achieved only when we receive the word of God. Look back, verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word. This is the point of application for us. If we would be one with all other believers across all time, if we would strive for this apostolic unity or this oneness within the church that the creeds and the councils of many bygone generations have testified to, we'll only achieve it through receiving the word. And I think that that verb is so crucial. It's dokamazo. It's in the deponent middle. It's time for a little Greek grammar lesson. In the middle tense of the verb, you have active and you have passive. I'm looking around for my Greek students because they will know this by memory at this point. They will be able to recite off exactly what I'm about to say word for word. The illustration I use is that of a knife. I don't know why, when I went to school many, many years ago, my seminary professor used a knife, so this is rather morbid, but it's the best illustration I've ever heard, and I continue to use it, so bear with me. When you have a knife, you can actively use that knife to stab something. You are the subject of the sentence, and you are stabbing something else. You are performing the action with the knife, okay? You can also have a passive tense verb, where you can, you can be the subject of the sentence And you are not only the subject of the sentence, but you are also the object of the action. You are receiving the action that is being performed, such as I could word it this way. I am being stabbed. That's passive. Middle tense verbs is where the subject is both performing as well as receiving the action. But we have a special category within Greek called deponent verbs, which are actually passive verbs that take a middle ending. This is kind of where it gets a little complicated. What we essentially have happening here in this particular verse is the apostles are hearing that the Samaritans are passively humbling themselves to receive, to actively take into possession what is being given to them by the preaching of Philip. They are humbling themselves in order to take hold of and to receive that which is a gift to them, which is the word of Christ. In other words, we learn from this particular verb that when Philip stands up to preach Christ, they don't sit there and debate with him. They don't get into these academic discussions such as, hmm, I wonder now, is it really possible for man to be both fully God and fully man? And is it possible for the virgin birth and all these sorts of things? They don't immediately begin to question. None of that happens. Exactly the opposite. From the structure of the verse, it says that they heard it, they received it. They humbled themselves beneath it. They didn't quibble. They didn't nitpick. They didn't get in these high intellectual academic, you know, arguing sessions They received, they humbled themselves before it, and they took it. When the apostles heard that, then they come. That's when unity is established. That's when the apostolic oneness of the church is achieved. And then they leave, and it is only through that humble reception of the word that the real individual ministry, the autonomy of the local church, really begins. You say, Pastor, why do you make such a big deal of that? I'll tell you why. In the last six, six months to a year, there are things within the scriptures 
that are just so clear as to be beyond any dispute. There are also things within the scriptures that are kind of murky, you know, it's a one-time reference and we're not really sure what to do with that. And I allow, and I and many other Christians allow for a wide range of, uh, of opinions on these sorts of things. Favorite example of this, which every preacher alludes to, eschatology. What is happening at the end of times? You know, we all have a kind of a general idea, but then the specifics of what's going to happen or in what order something's going to happen, we're not 100% sure. And so we can say when it comes to things like eschatology, we can agree to disagree, okay? But there are things within Scripture that are beyond dispute, such as the sanctity of human life. What is amazing to me, whether I'm talking about euthanasia or whether I'm talking about abortion, and as I either post on social media or I'm commenting to different people at coffee shops, what is amazing and heartbreaking to me, the responses that I receive which are often quite vitriolic, come from Christians who think that either euthanasia or abortion are acceptable. A few weeks ago, maybe this is probably maybe six weeks ago now, this is probably over a month ago, I just uh, was encouraged by a couple of different states in the United States passing what is known as the heartbeat abortion ban, in which essentially the legislation is if you can detect the baby's heartbeat, at that point, abortion is illegal. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing abortion anymore. And, th- and it passed. And so I just threw out a kudos, hey, I'm grateful for this legislation. And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think it was going to be controversial. I was just like, yay, go, go you states who did this. I'm proud of you. It was like uh, just sort of a fleeting. I, I didn't consciously wade into theological controversy. I'm just tweeting a thing, right? Like that's all this is. I'm just tweeting a thing or Facebook posting a thing. And um, the responses that came back were heartbreaking because it betrayed an understanding, a lack of understanding, I should say, in a core doctrine of Scripture, which is explicit, which is clear and beyond dispute. Thou shalt not murder. Life, all life, from the cradle to the grave, is precious in God's eyes. And there is no gray room on this topic. And yet all of the feedback, all of the pushback from the various Christians that I interacted with, all came back to this idea, if we want the world to hear the truth of the gospel. We've got to accommodate, we've got to sort of, I guess, mediate our position, water down, that's how I heard it, water down our position on some of these things. We need to no longer hold to certain core things. And this isn't just with the issue of the sanctity of life. This is with the issue of gender and identity politics. This is with the issue of all kinds of of different things from education and things that are happening in our schools on a number of different issues. But if we consider what Jesus prayed on the night that he was, the night before he was to be crucified, he said, I'm not asking only for these, Father, but for all who will believe in me through their word. 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world, listen to this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The argument that the gospel is more palatable when we soften or mediate our stance on any issue of doctrine that scripture upholds that is clear. In order to make the gospel more palatable, that we have to soften our stance, the argument that that will be more effective is false, according to the prayer of Christ. He says the opposite. That oneness amongst his people would result in the world knowing that God has sent him to die for sins. Our message is not made more palatable by watering down what the word of God has to say on any other number of issues. Just the opposite. When we water down the gospel, when we water down our understanding of all these other issues, we are no longer walking in the harmony of God's word and what we've received from the word. We are no longer in harmony with each other. We are no longer in harmony with the Father. And our message is compromised. And do you know who hurts the worst from that message? We do. We are confused. And that confusion will be used by the enemy at some point to strike at the helmet of salvation that Christians are called to wear. When we argue and when we debate and when we do not humbly come to the word to receive what the word has to say to us, sooner or later the confusion which we then cultivate within our congregation comes home into our own hearts regarding our own relationship with God. And so Jesus' prayer, the night before he was to be crucified, was that we would have a spiritual unity. And the world rushes to look at affiliations and allegiances to various bishops or popes or certain denominational or flowchart type unity. And what Christ is calling for here is that we would actually have unity through surrendering to him and what he says. I don't remember who first made this illustration. I want to say it was Tozer, but I'm not sure that's right. I like to give proper attribution whenever I steal something. If you take a piano, you have 100 pianos in a room. And if you tune this piano, and then you go to the piano next to it, and you tune that piano to the first piano, and then you go to the third piano, and you tune that piano to the second piano, and so forth and so on, so that every piano is tuned to the piano that was tuned just before it. And you go around the whole room, and you tune all 100 pianos. You get somebody in there to play a, you know, some sort of a concert all together on all 100 of these pianos. They're all going to be out of tune from each other. They're all going to be slightly off as you went. But if every piano in that room is tuned to the first piano, then they will all be in tune. In our discipleship, as we walk with Christ, 
and as we help others to walk with Christ. It's not so important that they agree with us so much as it is that we both are in agreement with the word of God. And that is what we should be striving for now and always. Pray with me, First Baptist Church. Lord, we just say thank you. We say thank you for the privilege of being a part of the family and the people of God. We say thank you, Lord, for your word, its clarity, and the way that it speaks to us. And we pray, Lord, more and more that our lives would live in obedience and conformity to the word. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that we would discover the amazing joy and the blessing and the privilege of having harmony with all our brothers and sisters around us who seek for the same thing. I pray, Lord, more and more that you would help us to express this unity that you have given to us in the cross of your Son. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.